right, good morning, New Life. Good morning. good morning, good to see every one of you, every one of you. Well, if you're wondering what sermon series we are in, we are not in a sermon series. Kind of got a standalone message today. Brett said, Sean, you could just preach on whatever you want to preach on. So I had to think, what do I want to preach on? Honestly, first was like the event. The good news of the Buffalo Bills was one thing that came to my mind, but uh, I'm not going to preach about that, okay? It's a long season. It's a long season. It's a long season, okay? But, you know, I was thinking, what, depending on the season that it is, okay, what would be a good timely message? Being cold and flu season, I decided that I was going to preach on something that would be good for our immune systems, okay? What would be good for our immune systems? I'm going to preach on rest, on rest, because if there was one thing that our bodies need in order for us to fight infection, whether we get sick or just keeping preventing from being sick, it's, it's rest. And I figure if this is a terrible sermon and it bombs and you all fall asleep, I will have accomplished my goal. So instant application, instant application. Several years ago, I was uh, in meeting room two. I was working for a true AP, true athlete performance, uh, a group here that we train athletes. And we were listening to this lecture, this guy who was an Olympic trainee, he trained Olympic athletes, and he said, hey guys, what is the most important thing you can do for your athletes in order to help them be at their best? No, what can you do so that they can be at peak performance? We thought for a second and we started throwing out things like, is it, you know, the, the programming that we give to them? Is, is it the exercises that we make them perform? No, it's not those exercises, not the, the workout regimen. It's, what, about, what about nutrition? Is it nutrition? Is nutrition the most important thing? No, not nutrition. Well, what about, is, it, is it mobility, flexibility? Is it, is it that? No, not that. He says the most important thing you can do for your athletes is to help them with their sleep, is to help them rest. And then he said, because exercise is bad for you, which some of you are like, I knew it. I knew it. They've been lying to me my whole life. I knew exercise. But then he goes, you know, just think about it. Think about it. what happens in your body when you exercise. Your blood pressure rises. It's not usually a good thing. Your body temperature rises like you have a fever, like your body's like, something's not right. Fight it off. Your heart rate increases, not usually a sign of something good. Your muscles begin to tear down and rip apart. Exercise is only good for you when then you rest after you exercise and you recover and you receive the benefits of all your labor. And one thing we see in the Bible is that God, He's created us to work. He creates us to work. We open up Genesis chapter 1 and we see God working, 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 creating. For six days, He works. And then what does He do? He rests. He rests and He invites us to follow His example to work, to work, to work and rest. Because if all we're doing is working... Work becomes a destructive thing. It becomes a destructive thing if we don't rest properly. Now, by a show of hands, who here grew up in a family that Sunday afternoon was reserved for napping? Anybody? Okay, maybe I'm alone with this. But Sunday afternoon in our household, during the fall, was reserved for Buffalo Bills football and then taking a nap. Okay, the rest of the year, it was just we would get home, we would eat lunch, and then we would take a nap. Which didn't make any sense to me as a kid because I'm like, parents... We've, we've got two days of the week where I don't have to go to school. And you've got two days a week where you don't have to go to work. And we're wasting one of them by taking naps. Like we should be out playing football. What are we doing here? 
And yet my parents, because they're a little bit wiser than me, probably a little more exhausted than me, decided that we would take naps because they knew that they needed to recover and needed to prepare themselves for the work week that was ahead. Now, most of us, I would imagine, probably understand the benefits of resting. Some of us, it's not an argument like, like Seneca. Seneca, the first century Stoic philosopher, the whole idea of resting and taking a Sabbath, taking a day off of work didn't make any sense to him. He looked at Jewish people who observed the Sabbath and rested one day a week, and he says, this is ridiculous. He says, Jews waste one-seventh of their life in inactivity. Hmm. He didn't understand it. He didn't get the wisdom of it. I imagine most of us probably understand the wisdom and the benefits of resting. Our struggle is just resting, though right? Because how many of you, you clock out of work at five o'clock and you're done working for the rest of the day? Like you're not thinking about work at all. You're not checking work email, right? The weekends, no, you're not thinking about it at all. And then you, you get to bed and you just put your head on your pillow and you just fall instantly asleep, right? Is that your reality? Probably not for most of us. In our career-driven, success-driven society, resting, even when we have the opportunity to rest sometime, it eludes us. But today, I, I want to open up God's Word to help us understand, number one, why rest is so important, and give us some help on how we can rest more properly. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, the book of Hebrews was a letter written in the first century, written to Christians who were coming out of Judaism. They were raised in Jewish households. They were raised thinking that their relationship with God was based upon their work upon their good deeds, upon their ability to keep the Old Testament law. And if they could just work hard enough and be good enough, then God would accept them. Now, they've, they've now started to follow Jesus and saying, we don't need to work any longer. Jesus has accomplished his work for us. But because they have followed Jesus and said that he is their Savior, he is their King, he is the Messiah, they're, ex they're experiencing persecution. Their friends, their community has ostracized them and said, you need to throw in the towel on Jesus Quit resting in him and continue to try to earn your relationship through rule keeping. And so they're being tempted to quit on Jesus. And so in that time and space, the author of Hebrews says this, verse 1 and following, Therefore, since we have the promise to enter his rest, it remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united to those who heard it in faith. The book of Hebrews is referring to Old Testament saints, Old Testament children of Israel who had received a promise of rest but never received it. So it continues, For we have not, we who have believed enter that rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger they shall not enter my rest. Even though his even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way, and on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the, 
person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. So what's going on here? What, what is the author of Hebrews describing here? Well, they're describing how in the Old Testament, God had promised his people rest. And chapter 3 of Hebrews wraps up talking about how Moses had led the Israelites who had been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. They hadn't had a day off in 400 years. Think about that. They hadn't had a day off in 400 years. And Moses delivers them from their slavery and takes them to the promised land, this land that he says you're going to have rest in, right? You're no longer going to be slaves. You're, you're going to be able to have your own land. You're going to have your own businesses. You can take a day off of work. It's going to be so great. And so they look forward to this day. And that first generation didn't get in because they didn't trust God. But then this guy Joshua takes up the mantle of leadership from Moses and he leads the Israelites in. And they start living their own lives. They start, you know, having their own land and starting their own businesses. And yet something's missing. Something's missing. They're still like, Where? this isn't the rest that we thought we would be enjoying here. And then it says, generations later, David is king in Israel. He's the mighty king in Israel. All the enemies are gone and he is ruling. And yet even David says, something's missing. I'm not receiving the rest that God had promised me. Perhaps you can relate. Have you ever looked forward to a weekend and you're like, man, I just can't wait to get to the weekend? Man, you got plans, right? You're like, man, this, this weekend we're going camping as a family. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be so restorative. And then you do it and you get back and you're more exhausted than you were when you left. And so you look forward to the following weekend where you go, oh, we're going to do this. Or, or you're like, you know, we're gonna, it's going to be great. We're going to take our kids to the sports and then we're going to have a family night. And it's going to be so great. We're going to watch a movie and then it comes and it goes and you're just like, where is this rest? I thought it was going to be so restorative and I just don't have it yet. And you're always looking forward to that next vacation, that next weekend, and you never truly find that rest. Why don't we find it? Because the book of Hebrews says that, that God, He doesn't offer us rest through a vacation. He doesn't offer us rest through land. He offers us rest through a relationship with Him that we can only have in Jesus. The book of Hebrews is saying, in order for us to rest physically, mentally, emotionally, we've got to learn to rest spiritually, to rest in Jesus. And to help us see how it's so hard for us to experience this in our present day, I want to refer to the work of a Jewish journalist named Judith Shulovitz. She writes articles for the New York Times magazines, and several years ago, she wrote an article titled, Bring Back the Sabbath. That was the title, Bring Back the Sabbath. And in this article, she talks about how she was raised in a Jewish household, and she observed the Sabbath every Saturday. Her and her family, they would go to the synagogue, and then for the rest of the day, they would relax. They wouldn't do any work, and it didn't make any sense to her. She's like, this is ridiculous. And so when she became a young adult, she pushed it away. She said, I'm not going to, I'm going to work. I've got to be productive. I've got things I've got to get done. But then over time, she began to see the wisdom and the value in practicing Sabbath. In the article, she refers to the work of Sander Frenizi, who was a Hungarian psychologist in the early 20th century. And Sander, he was seeing clients who started coming to him complaining of a sickness that would come only on Sunday afternoons. 
They were, they were fine the rest of the week, but Sunday afternoon would roll around and all of a sudden they would start suffering from headaches and stomach aches and bouts with depression. And he looked at their lifestyle and well, he narrowed it down to one cause. And the cause was the Sabbath. It was their day off. And, and he, he coined the term Sunday neurosis. They were struggling from Sunday neurosis. And Sunday neurosis isn't, oh, where did my weekend go? I, I, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. No, it's actually just the, the opposite it's just the opposite. This is what Viktor Frankl, who's an Austrian psychiatrist, says about Sunday neurosis. Sunday neurosis, that kind of depression which afflicts people who become aware of the lack of content in their lives when the rush of the busy week is over and the void within themselves becomes manifest. Yeah, see, some of us struggle with Sunday neurosis because some of our worst fears is waking up on a Sunday or a Saturday and not having something productive to do. And in the midst of the lack of something to do, our souls become restless. And so even when we're invited, even when we have the opportunity to rest, we can't rest. What's the cause? What, what, what's at the root of this Sunday neurosis? Judith gets to it as she looks back on a time when our society, we practice Sabbath. Like, I don't remember. This is before my time. But there was a day when Chick-fil-A wasn't the only restaurant closed on Sunday. A hundred, a year, hundred years ago, all restaurants were closed. All businesses were closed for business because Sunday was a day of rest. And she says this. She says, on that weekly holiday observed by all present-day civilized humanity... Not only did drudgery give way to festivity, family gatherings, and occasionally worship, but the machinery of self-censorship shut down to stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. So what's at the cause? What's at the root of Sunday neurosis? It's that, that voice inside of you that says, you're not good enough. You got to keep working because you're not good enough yet. It's that voice, students, that says that you need to keep studying and not put down the books until you get an A because if you don't get an A, well, you're a failure. You're a failure. It's that voice that says you need to keep working in order for you to get that promotion because if you don't get the promotion, then everybody's going to think less of you. You're going to be less of a human being. It's that voice that drives you to, to make more money because if you don't have more money than the neighbor beside you, then you're not successful. It's that voice of the inner critic that says you're not good enough and it keeps us from being able to rest. Do we have any Rocky fans in the house? Anybody, anybody like the, the Rocky movies? Okay, I see you back there, Jody. Okay. I like some of the Rocky movies. Okay, I like some of the Rocky movies. I remember I just finished fourth grade and my mom was like, Sean, it is time that you watch Rocky. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I'm like, what is Rocky? Like, is it about a rock? I thought it was real. I was like, what? No, it's about a boxer, Sean. I'm like, you're going to allow me to watch a movie about people clobbering each other? Sign me up. Yeah, and so we went to Wegmans, got the VHS, put it in, and I was enamored with this Rocky guy. That day, I'm like, I want to be Rocky. I want to be able to do one-armed push-ups, okay? I want to be able to jump rope like Rocky. I want to be able to run up the stairs in Philadelphia and raise my hands in triumph and... Man, that Rocky, he was so great, such a great movie. And that's why I was thoroughly disappointed when I watched Rocky 2. I'm like, how could Rocky 1 be so good and Rocky 2 be so bad? It didn't make any sense. 
Well, I, I think I figured out why. I think I think I figured out why. You know, in Rocky 1, before he goes up against the champion, before he goes up to fight Creed, he admits to his girlfriend, Adrian, what's motivating him to work so hard. He says this. He says, I want to go the distance with Creed so that I can prove to myself that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. And so what's motivating him to run through the streets of Little Italy, to clobber those slabs of beef, is to still the inner murmur of self-reproach. And does he ever still it? Does he ever receive peace? No. That's why they got to make 10 other Rocky movies. Right? Because no amount of work will ever still that voice in your head. Maybe you're not a Rocky fan. Maybe you're more of a fan of the movie Chariots of Fire. Okay, love that movie as well. It's like one of the only movies that's about the Sabbath. It actually tells a true story, the true story of two Olympic athletes in the 1920s who ran track for the United Kingdom. Uh, on one hand, you had Eric Little, who was so content in his identity and his relationship with God, that when he found out that the race that he was favored to win in the 100-meter dash, that the heats for the event were going to take place on a Sunday, a, a day that he reserved to rest and to glorify God, he said, I'm not going to run in it. I'm good. I'll just try my hand at another race. He said, Sunday's about God, not about me. And so he ran in the 400-meter dash, ended up winning the gold medal in that. Crazy. But then on the other hand, you've got Harold Abrams, his teammate. And, and throughout the movie, you see this restlessness in him, that he's always trying to prove himself. And, and so right before the gold medal race that he is in, he confides in his trainer saying this, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again, and I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide, the track lane with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Why does he work so hard? Why does he run? To still the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach, to prove to himself and other people that he's worth it. The ironic thing is he wins the gold medal and he's still not enough. You know who else heard this voice, this voice that said, you're not good enough yet, was Adam and Eve. Just go back to the first chapters of the Bible, and we read that God creates Adam and Eve. He creates mankind. And for the first time, he says, this is very good. Everything else he had created was good. It's good, it's good, it's good. All of a sudden, mankind comes, it's very good. But Adam and Eve say, thanks for the compliment, God, but we don't think so. We don't think we're good enough yet. We still need something else. We still need more knowledge. We still need more. And so what did that force them to do? It forced them to work. It forced them to harvest where they should not have been harvesting from. To eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that God says, you don't need that. You're already good enough. And all of a sudden, their relationship with God broke. All of a sudden, they begin to feel shame. And what do they do? They hide and they begin to work to cover up that shame, to cover up their nakedness. They sew fig leaves together. And does it ever cover up their nakedness? Does it ever cover up their shame? No, there's not enough amount of work that they can do to cover it up. And so God comes down and he sheds blood and he wraps them up in animal skins, pointing to the day that Jesus would come and down and die for them on the cross so that we could wrap ourselves up and clothe ourselves in Christ in his righteousness. 
Now that's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, he says this, he says, come to me. He says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Yes, you will find rest for your souls when we learn to wrap up our identity, not in our accomplishments, not in our work, not in what we do, but in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's why Jesus, when he walked the dusty streets of Galilee, he looked around himself and he saw people who were constantly trying to earn their favor with God by keeping the rules. Some people who were even looking down on other people because they said, man, you don't observe the Sabbath like I do. I'm really better at resting than, than, than you do. And he looked at all these people and he said, you need to rework your understanding of the Sabbath and what the Sabbath is all about. One story where he does this is found in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus shows up at a synagogue. It's Saturday. It's the Sabbath. And according to Jewish rules and rituals, you weren't allowed to heal somebody. You weren't allowed to give somebody medical treatment, attention on the Sabbath. Unless it was life or death, you couldn't do anything. Doctors, you're off duty. But Jesus shows up on the Sabbath at the synagogue and he sees a man with a deformed hand, a shriveled hand. And he sees the Sabbath police are there, right? All these people who are putting their, their significance, their identity in rule keeping. And Jesus says, watch out, watch out. So he says, hey, stand up, man. He has this man stand up. He says, reach out your hand. He reaches out his hand. Jesus heals his hand. His hand is restored. And that ticks off all the religious leaders. They say, how dare you do this? How dare you heal this man on the Sabbath, Jesus? And Jesus says, if, if, if you think it's illegal, that it's, it's sinful to heal somebody on the Sabbath, then you understand that the Sabbath, it wasn't made for man. That it was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, he says. We're not to be a slave to the Sabbath. It's for our own benefit, he says. And then he says this. He drops this bombshell on them. He says, you know what? the Son of Man, me, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one that the whole Sabbath points to. The reason why God gave us the Sabbath in the first place was to show that you needed me and that your souls will never find rest. You'll never be good enough on your own. And that ticked them off even more. And then they looked for a way to kill him. And eventually they were successful and they killed him. And ironically, they made him the Lord of the Sabbath. Why? Because on the cross, he experienced eternal restlessness. You see him writhing in pain, right? You see him crying out. Why? Because he was paying for our sins. He was paying to still the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. The work has been accomplished. You don't need to work any longer to earn your relationship with God. It's finished. And that's why when he was killed and he was laid in a tomb... On that Sabbath day, that Saturday when he was in the tomb and people were saying, oh, he's not good enough. He apparently wasn't the Messiah. Apparently he wasn't strong enough to take himself off the cross. Apparently he wasn't who he says he was. Did he feel the need to justify himself? Did he feel the need to come up and say, how dare you say that about me? No. He could rest. He rested until the first day and then he rose from the dead and he invites us to rest as well. So how do we practice Sabbath? How do we rest 
in God. Let me give some practical steps for us this week. Number one, very simply, trust God. Very simply, trust God. Wake up every morning and remind yourself that you are not the summation of your accomplishments. You are not your career. You are not the letters behind your name. If you have been baptized, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you are a child of God. The book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, says when you are baptized, you clothe yourself with Christ. His righteousness, his standing before God now becomes you. So you know what God sees when he sees you now? He sees a a son or a daughter of a mighty king. You know what he says about you? You know what the voice that we're to listen to, Hebrews says we need to listen to his voice? The voice that we are to listen to is the same voice who echoed from heaven when Jesus was baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, what did his heavenly father say about him? He says, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Before he performed miracles, before he had a ministry, God says, this is my son whom I love. And he will say that about you when you clothe yourself in Jesus and you trust in his work. I don't know if you understand this, but most of our jobs, it's not so taxing because of the work that we do. What's so taxing is the work behind the work. It's the constantly trying to prove ourselves, trying to prove to one another that we're not a fraud. But when we allow Jesus to give us rest, the work behind the work ceases. Rich Froning is a a guy that most people in the fitness industry describe as the fittest man in history. In 2010, he started competing in the sport of CrossFit. 2010, it was his first year competition, and yet he made it to what is basically the Olympics of the CrossFit world. He made it to the CrossFit Games. And he shows up, and nobody knows who he is, but he starts competing. He starts turning heads. Everyone's like, who's this guy? He goes in the last day, the last competition, and he's in first place. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. He gets to the last event of the Games, He gets the last exercise of the last event. He's in the lead. Unfortunately, though, he's got to climb a rope. He's got to climb a rope. And the last time he's climbed a rope has been years ago. And his his dad had taught him how to climb a rope. But his dad said, don't use your feet, son. Don't use your feet. You know, feet are for, okay. And normally he'd be able to climb a rope. But after three days of competition, after exhausting his arms, he had nothing left. And so he climbs the rope the first time and he gets up and he falls down because he can't even bring himself down. He tries to climb it a second time. He gets about halfway, falls down. He tries again. He falls down. He falls down. He keeps failing. Eventually, this guy who thought he was going to win, everyone thought he was going to win, ends up getting second place in the CrossFit Games. And he was devastated. He was devastated. He thought, what's it worth? This isn't worth it. He sank into a deep depression, stopped working out. So it's not even worth it anymore. Fortunately, though, he had some friends who said, Rich, you're more than an athlete. You're more than what you do on the performance floor. And they challenged him to start reading the Bible. All of a sudden, he started reading the Bible. He was baptized. He rededicated his life to following God. And all of a sudden, that gave him a new perspective. All of a sudden, working out became something that he didn't have to do but something that he got to do, something that he could do for the glory of God. And all of a sudden, the next year, he won the CrossFit Games. The next year, 2012, won the CrossFit Games. Next year, 2013, won the CrossFit Games. Next year, won the CrossFit Games. Went down in history as the, great, the most fittest man in history. Why? Because the pressure was off. Because he was no longer doing it to justify his existence. 
Because he knew that his identity was wrapped up in what Christ had done for him on the cross. Do you know that? Do you know that? Trust God. If you've never been baptized, you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you've never wrapped yourself in his righteousness, clothed yourself in it, I encourage you to make that decision. Come find me. Come talk to somebody in the back. We've got two other people that plan to be baptized today. We would love for you to join them in that step. Secondly, take breaks. Observe the Sabbath. Take a day a week where you don't check your work emails. A day a week where you say, I am off duty. And start your day that day with worship. Get up in the morning and spend more time with God. Spend time in His Word. Pray. Listen to worship music. Because the Sabbath isn't about you. The Sabbath is about reminding us that we serve a God who is our great provider. And that six days with His blessing actually goes further than seven days without His blessing. And so if you're going to practice Sabbath, it has to first start with worshiping God. And don't be that person that's just like, yeah, you know, I only get four hours of sleep every night because I'm so busy. You're only hurting yourself. It's only when you get into stage four and five of sleep that your brain creates, produces the human growth hormones that your need, your body needs in order to recover, in order for your brain to be healthy so you don't sink and struggle with depression and anxiety. Don't do that to yourself. Take breaks. Number three, get accountability. Do you have somebody in your life that will keep you accountable to practicing Sabbath? Several years ago, my roommate came up to me and said, Sean, you are terrible at resting. I had no idea what he was talking about. Kind of looked at my life, kind of reevaluated and said, okay, I've got some work to do when it comes to practicing Sabbath. And I was grateful that he would hold me accountable to that. You know, but some of us, you're going to be in a season of your life, maybe with young kids or maybe with, you know, becoming a doctor. Maybe you're going to be a doctor. Maybe you're going to become a lawyer. Maybe you're starting a business. And there are going to be seasons of your life where you're going to have to run a little bit faster, a little bit harder. The question is, after those seasons are done, will you be able to downshift? Will you be able to rest? You won't oftentimes until you have somebody who's going to hold you accountable and say, hey, you got to stop. you got to rest a while. That season is over. You're going to burn out if you don't. Start resting. Do you have somebody that's going to keep you accountable? Find somebody to say, hey, once this season is over, pull me back. Pull me back. Number four, develop a fun habit that helps you recharge. Okay, develop a fun habit that helps you recharge. That was one thing that made me miserable when I tried to practice Sabbath. When I would get up in the morning and was like, what am I going to do today? I'm trying to rest. How do I do it? And I would get really anxious. But then I started developing things that were life-giving. I was like, all right, Sean, today you can read books. You can go for a hike. You can go mountain biking. You can work on your house. Like those things are restorative to me because they're different from what I do the the rest of the six days of the week. So think about, what can you do that's different from what you do for work that can recharge your batteries? Do you enjoy baking? Maybe, maybe you know, spend a day of the week where you just bake. If you're a baker, don't bake on your day off, okay? Order takeout, read a book. You know, I don't think any of us are fishermen. Like, I don't think any of us, like, fish for a living. So go fish, go hunt, go ride your bike, garden. Do something different. 
recharge your batteries. And remember, guys, see, God has commanded us. He has commanded us that we need to rest. He's created us to work, but he has commanded us to rest. The only way we do that is to listen to God's voice. Over that voice that says, you're not good enough yet, listen to God's voice that says, that's untrue. That is a lie from the pits of hell. And Jesus proved it when he went to the cross and died for us. Listen to his voice that said, it is finished. You are good enough, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done for you. I don't know what your next step is today when it comes to practicing Sabbath, but I pray that you would hear God's voice and you would take a next step. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the fact that the work has been done, the work has been accomplished. Because of what your son Jesus has done for us on the cross, we don't have to hang our hat on what we do, our accomplishments, but upon what you have done for us on the cross. That Help us wrap our identity up in that this week so that your voice would still the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach, God. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.